0: And thanks for listening. This is Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. We know that melting ice caps are causing the world's oceans to rise. But for those of us who don't own beachfront property, it may be hard to fathom the consequences of a few feet of water. Recent extreme weather events like Sandy, Harvey, and Irma have given some U.S. cities a hint of what might be in store.
2: One way to think about this is as a kind of dress rehearsal for sea level rise. I mean, imagine this kind of water coming in, and instead of just spending a couple of hours there and going out the way it did with Sandy, it stayed in.
0: But even as the people of Puerto Rico struggle with the aftermath of Hurricane Maria, some see an opportunity.
3: Why don't they make loans available so people can afford and purchase their own energy systems, which comes from a sustainable and a renewable source and Puerto Rico is gonna have sunshine for the next five billion years, that is not gonna run out.
0: Rising seas, sinking cities, and the future of our planet, up next on Climate One. The tide is high and getting higher. Are we prepared for an increasingly watery world? Welcome to Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. Climate One conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans, and Democrats are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. Jeff Goodell's new book on sea level rise is titled The Water Will Come, but according to experts, it's already here. Oceans have risen by six to eight inches in recent decades. By some estimates, our seas could rise between three and eight feet by the end of this century, threatening hundreds of coastal cities and potentially wiping out entire island nations. On today's program, we welcome author and Rolling Stone contributor Jeff Goodell to discuss his book. We're also joined by Catherine Mock, Senior Research Scientist at Stanford University and former Co-Director of Science for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and Marco Krapels, former Vice President of Tesla and co-producer of the documentary Before the Flood. Here's your host, Greg Dalton.
1: Uh, Jeff Goodell, let's begin with you. You opened your book saying that you had written about climate change, but when Hurricane Sandy slammed into New York City it became a visceral issue for you. So tell us how that hit you in the gut.
2: Well, you know, I I, I had been writing about climate change for a long time, and I'd heard about sea level rise. I kind of knew about it the way that, you know, one knows about these things that you read about. Um, But it was never a kind of urgent issue to me. And then... um, when Sandy hit, I wasn't in the city, but I went down there right afterwards and seeing all of the, the, you know, we, we got about nine foot st- of storm surge into lower Manhattan. And I went down there and was walking around the streets and, you know, seeing the water still in the cars and, you know, people hauling soggy furniture out of their apartments and the smell, and you could already smell the mold. And it was just, you know, it was just a very visceral feeling of what water can do to a place. And as a journalist, I was thinking about how to cover this, how to write about this. And I knew I had to write about it. And I, I was talking to some scientists at Columbia. And one scientist said to me, you know, one way to think about this is as a kind of dress rehearsal for sea level rise. I mean, imagine this kind of water coming in. And instead of just spending a couple of hours there and going out the way it did with Sandy, it stayed in. And that was a pretty mind blowing thing. Um, and he said, well, if you w-, and I told him that I said, that's a pretty mind blowing idea. And he said, well, if you really want to blow your mind, Uh, go down to Miami and think about that. Uh, And so I did. And I went to Miami, and I happened to get there at um, King Tides, which is the annual high tide for uh, the region. And I was walking through three feet of water in Miami Beach on just a regular King Tide kind of day. And I thought about it for a few minutes, literally. And you realize that most of Miami-Dade County is six feet above the sea, It's built on a kind of porous limestone, making it very difficult to build any kind of walls. And I realized that Miami was uh, a city in big, big trouble. Um, And that was sort of where the book began, right there. Catherine Mock, what can science tell us about how
1: fast this sea level rise will happen? Because a lot of people think of sea level rise as like this very slow-moving thing that will be a problem for my grandkids. But what do we know about Antarctica and Greenland how fast it will happen?
4: Before we jump to how fast it might happen, I might just say that it's already happening, and Superstorm Sandy, when it struck New York City in October of 2012, hit shore on top of one foot, of sea level rise. And the key question of when we think about what's happened to date versus what might happen into the future is that there are different processes at play, so warmer ocean takes up more space, and ice is melting from land and also from the ice sheets. But the really big question about risk is exactly how fast the ice Sheets might collapse. So the West Antarctic and Greenland don't just melt on the surface, they flow through time. And what we're doing with our emissions of heat trapping gases is the amount of forcing that normally might happen between an interglacial and a glacial cycle. And they're incredibly important questions about how much faster those processes might play out over the next few decades and the next few centuries.
1: Okay so we're, so we're not sure and what what are the ranges for some place like California or the East Coast what what are we looking at by by a, a time frame give me a time frame when i think i'll be alive and not 2100
4: Okay so today there have been 8 inches of sea level rise globally U.S. is pretty much at the global average. Uh, Alaska has more intensity because of the ice and permafrost, and the eastern seaboard is seeing a bit more than that. In the next 15 years, we might see another half foot of sea level rise, so a substantial increase in the rate at which the oceans are rising. Stepping through this century when, uh, I guess I won't be alive in 2100, but the risk at that point is best estimates around one to four feet of sea level rise globally, but if the ice sheets move faster rather than slower, that upper bound could be up to eight feet at the global scale.
1: Eight feet. Jeff Goodall, are we prepared, anywhere prepared for eight feet or even three feet?
2: (coughs) Excuse me, eight feet, no. Uh, I mean, just imagine what eight feet of sea level rise means. Um, We were just talking uh, a few minutes ago that there's already flooding on 101 uh, around here. Places in Miami are already inundated. Norfolk, I mean, many places are already dealing with this. So even small amounts are hugely consequential. Eight feet is... Uh, I mean, I, I don't want to be uh, melodramatic, but that's catastrophic. I mean, there's just no scenario in which a, a, a modern city can be prepared for that. Even, But even these m- mid-range scenarios of three or four feet, it's really important to... to um, to to see the thing about sea level rise is it doesn't have to be gargantuan to have enormous problems with um, beaches washing away, with uh, roads eroding, the the costs for communities to deal with this, uh, property values declining at exactly the time when they need to spend more money on adaptation. The economic kind of downward spiral that can be caused by even modest amounts of sea level rise is hugely consequential. And will begin to play out long before these big numbers get hit. I mean, even in the next few decades, uh, even now we're seeing it in in places in Florida where, you know, they're spending instead of ten million dollars every two years to replenish the beaches, they're spending 50 million dollars. And, you know, where's that money coming from? And every every inch of sea level rise increases that erosion rate, increases the the you know washing away of of roads and, and incursion into buildings and things like that. So it's it's a uh, progressive problem sea level rise amplifies
1: uh big storms hurricanes cyclones uh Catherine mock tell us about we've been through harvey irma we talked about sandy also maria uh what is the the climate connection with these and and what could we tell us about the intensity and uh frequency in the future
4: Cyclones are complex phenomena in our climate system, so it helps to break it down to some simple ways of thinking about the connections between our emissions of heat-trapping gases and how these events have become more intense in the North Atlantic and how they might continue to become more intense. So first of all, when the ocean surface is warmer, and also when that warmer water goes deeper, you can drive the creation of more powerful storms. Second key feature is that a warmer atmosphere can hold more water, which means that it can come down in heavier rainfall events. And then the third point is where we were at the start is the fact that when waves are striking shore from a hurricane, oftentimes where you get the largest damages, those waves are striking shore on top of sea level rise, which is amplifying the risks.
1: So more fuel in the air, more fuel in the water, bigger storms. We saw the rain bombs in Houston. Also, Puerto Rico's been devastated. Marco Crepels, you've been to Puerto Rico. Tell us how the devastation there can also be an
3: opportunity. Yeah, we, we went to Puerto Rico with my foundation Empowered by Light. And I mean, basically, Puerto Rico's being wiped out. There is no grid. That's an opportunity to rebuild uh, the grid for the future. And, and I, you know, I'm going to try to not be too, too much of a downer <laughs> in, the, in this session. Um, um, you know, I just want to take a quick step back four years ago when I was last with you on, on a panel like this, um, we, we didn't have electric cars on the road, uh, solar, uh, cost on a per panel base is still 80 cents a watt and, uh, utility scale solar to develop costs about a dollar 50 cents a watt uh, today, four years later, uh, we've seen a lot of electric cars. Tesla's not the only one anymore, which is great. Uh, You know, every major car manufacturer, Mercedes, Audi, Volkswagen, everyone, uh, Volvo decided to phase out all uh, petrol cars by 2025. So we've seen in in the last four years uh, electric cars really taking hold um, and we're not dependent on one company anymore. We've seen the cost of solar drop by somewhere between 30 and 50 percent. Um, And uh, which means that in places like Puerto Rico, which are completely devastated, by the way, there is no grid. Every transformer is burned down. The poles are broken down. The utility is under FBI investigation. It is a complete disaster, which gives us a complete white canvas to rebuild the infrastructure that we need, which is about empowering people to make their own energy, to store it, to use what they need, and to sell what they don't need, and to create microgrids that are powered by renewable energy. And instead of the federal government sending more money to buy more diesel, which is going to run out, why don't they make loans available so that people can afford and purchase their own energy systems, which comes from a sustainable and a renewable source, and Puerto Rico is going to have sunshine for the next five billion years that is not going to run out. So I think there is a, you know, there, there's a lot of negative news out there. But there is also an opportunity with the technologies that we have available today that are affordable, they're cheaper than diesel, guaranteed, to basically incubate a model for the future. Jeff Goodell, there's a lot of inertia
1: to uh, rebuild the communities the way they were after a devastating, you know, Sandy, people want to rebuild the Jersey Shore. I just want my home to be the way it was. I want my life back. What are some of the inertia to rebuild the way it was and what are some of the forces to rebuild smarter differently like Marco Craples just outlined?
2: Um, before I, we, I answer that, I want to say one thing that's really important. What Mark was talking about is, is you know, how we move quickly towards renewable energy and cut carbon emissions is incredibly important. But I think that there's a big fallacy out there that if we move quickly enough, we can stop sea level rise and that we can eliminate this problem. And it's just a, a question of how fast we new, move to renewable power. That's not the case. We, no matter how fast we move to renewable power, we're still going to have sea level rise. We can change the trajectory of it. We can change the ultimate height of it, but we still have to have this conversation about dealing with it because we're already too far down that path. We're already uh, have enough heat built up in the oceans and things that we're going to see uh, these rising seas. That doesn't mean, again, to underscore that we don't have to cut carbon emissions as quickly as possible for a lot of reasons. But I think that there's a fallacy that we can kind of fix this in in a straightforward way, and it's it's not true.
1: You slam on the brakes on a super tanker, that super tanker keeps
2: moving exactly. for a while. Exactly. Okay. All right. So, about, about the rebuilding, I mean, you know, there's tremendous inertia in these coastal communities after a, a, a big storm, especially when you have, uh, you know, a Trump administration uh, to rebuild it the same way. The contractors come in and they're not like Marco, who are you know, brilliant people who are thinking in a profound way about these risks and want to really use this as an opportunity to change the, you know, the world. Many people who rebuild after storms are people who see this as an opportunity to make a buck. And that's a whole different scenario. And that's what we see happening in a lot of places. Uh, I saw that after Hurricane Sandy on the Jersey Shore. So, you know, it really requires sort of visionary thinkers to seize these moments and say, "Okay, this is a time when we we can use this opportunity to change where we build. And with sea level rise and storms, one simple thing that does happen and, will happen and will certainly happen a lot more is buying out communities and returning them to nature. Um, we, we did that in uh, a couple of neighborhoods on Staten Island, and there are going to be places where that's going to be the, the sort of solution after a rebuild is to say, we're not going to rebuild at all. We're just going to, this is, is going back to nature.
1: Catherine Mock, how are we going to decide who gets protected and what areas get abandoned?
4: We have a very clear understanding that managing the risks in a changing climate is going to require a big portfolio of actions. And so when I think we uh, dive in right to this question of retreat, we need to step back and say, how does that fit into the whole landscape of what we're doing. So some of the responses will be engineered. Uh, We need to adopt what the Dutch have done and figure out dikes and barriers. But also like the Dutch have done, we need to figure out how even nature can be a part of that, where we want to create floodplains. And then in part of that, we need to say where are there places that are so at risk that, uh, for example, the national flood insurance has paid a million dollars to a house for that is worth $70,000, those are the types of places where we need to be stepping in either through buyouts or through community relocations or through strategic adjustments of our infrastructure and create more room for the river in some really important ways, coming together with the stuff that's protection, the stuff that's accommodation, and the stuff that's moving out of harm's way in its entirety.
1: Jeff Goodell, you write about uh, living differently with water and and not fighting it, but kind of a, a new relationship with water.
2: Yeah, well, that's something the Dutch are, are figuring out. Um, you know, that's, they, they have this new idea. Uh, you know, they've obviously, you know, what, 70% of the Netherlands, as is, is, you know better than I, uh, is below sea level. And they've, you know, constructed this world that is protected by walls and dikes. But they're even figuring out that, given the kind of sea level rise projections we're talking about, they can't continue that. Uh, that's not building walls, uh, simply walling off the water is not going to work. So the Dutch are, are really sort of forward thinking in this idea of we have to live with water, we have to figure out new ways of living with water, that, that the future is going to require kind of adaptable living. You know, I think that's one of the profound ideas about sea level rise, and that I try to communicate in my book, is that we have this sense of our coastlines as being these fixed places that we build a house there, you put a road there, and that's where the beach is, and that's where the water is, and here's where the land is. Well, the thing that we know now is that that is going to be changing very rapidly. And in fact, you know, that's the way nature creates coastlines. They're all temporary arrangements of sort of sand and rock. And, you know, we have to live in a way that that embraces that and reflects that. Um, you know, and I saw that in some of the, uh, you know, in places like Lagos where I went and looked at people who are living in water slums there and, you know, they're living in houses that are on stilts and you talk to them about sea level rise and they're like, oh, I don't care if it raises rises four feet. I'll just put bigger stilts up and we're fine. Cause they commute, everything's on a boat and there's no built infrastructure.
1: You write about a school, a floating school there.
2: Yeah. And it's a great thing. It's a cheap, it was a very cheap. They just basically, this a Nigerian architect, a really brilliant man, uh, you know, basically lashed together a bunch of oil drums and built like a teepee on top of it, a sort of fancy teepee. And it was fabulous, and it was a community center, and it was two levels high, and everybody loved it, and, and it, it really was this sort of uh, uh, epicenter of this slum community. And it, really, it was really inspiring for everyone. It's why I went there. Um, and seeing the resiliency in this sort of simpler way of living was really inspiring to me, too, because it really showed me that it's really like how we think about it more than anything else that is their biggest stumbling block, that if we can think about this in more creative and flexible ways, it's not as scary. If you're just joining us,
1: we're talking about sea level rise at Climate One. Our guests are Jeff Goodell, author of the new book, The Water Will Come, Catherine Mock, a scientist from Stanford University, and Marco Kraepels, a former vice president of Tesla. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, Earlier, uh, when President Obama went to Alaska, Jeff Goodell traveled there and spoke with President Obama about the impact of climate disruption. Here's a part of their conversation.
2: You wish that the political system could process an issue like this just
4: based on data and science, but people have to see it and feel it and breathe it. Um, And that makes things a little
2: scarier uh, because it indicates that we're already losing a lot of time. Our democratic process is painfully slow. Historically, politics catch up when the public cares deeply. The American people, have to feel the same urgency that I do. It's understandable that they don't because it it feels abstract to people.
1: President Obama talking to Jeff Goodell in Alaska, Rolling Stone writer Jeff Goodell. So Jeff Goodell, tell us about that time, that interview. He was trying to lay out his legacy there and saying that also that got to reach people at a visceral level.
2: Right. I mean, he went up there um, in order to communicate with people about this. He went to Alaska, where is the sort of poster child for um, <coughs> both the, our dependency on fossil fuels and the risks of global warming and the, the melting that's going on there, the permafrost and everything, and displaced villages. And I was lucky enough, you know, he basically chose one rider to go with him, to spend a few days with him. And, uh, and they, for reasons that you have to talk to them about, they asked me if I wanted to go. They and wanted the best. <laughs> But I got the extraordinary opportunity not only to kind of climb around on glaciers with the president, but to spend an hour and a half sitting in an eighth-grade classroom in the Arctic Circle just him and I talking about climate change.
1: No one gets that kind of time with that guy. It,
2: it, yeah, it was very pretty good. And it was, you know, what was really extraordinary was that I've interviewed many people in my life as a journalist. And whenever you interview someone of prominence, they always want to know, what are you going The aides always want to know, what are you going to ask? So that the important person is not surprised by some weird question. You're going to spring on them. Nobody asked me. All they said is, you have an hour and a half with the president to talk about climate change. And that's all. And there was no like, are you going to ask him about glaciers? Are you going to ask him about, you know, what? what?" There was no prep. So I had him completely. He had no idea what I was going to ask him. And I have after all these years, I have a very good sort of BS detector for people who understand climate change and energy questions and people who have read a lot of notes about it. uh, And there's a big difference. And he got it. He really understood what was at risk and what was happening. I don't agree with everything that he said, but it was really um, an extraordinary moment. And, and it led to an extraordinary thing, which was the Paris Climate Agreement. And that was the whole point of that, to, to bring the American public along. He'd worked very hard, he and Secretary Kerry, to bring the Chinese on board to get this coalition together that came together and achieved what happened in Paris. And I was in Paris. It was a very emotional moment. People next to me were crying when the gavel went down. And now, in retrospect, it seems like some other world. It's like, you know, a long-lost past.
0: This is Climate One. Today we're talking about rising seas, why it's happening, what it means to our coastlines, and what we can do about it. Our guests are author Jeff Goodell, former Tesla Vice President Marco Krapels, and Catherine Mock of Stanford University. Here's Greg Dalton.
1: Katherine Mock, there's some interesting research that that shows what reaches people. uh, President Obama saying, former President Obama, but then President Obama saying, need to reach people on a a visceral, emotional level. Tell us about some research that you're aware of that, that says how that can happen with regard to climate.
4: Climate change is an awesome challenge in so many different ways. Responding effectively is going to require proactive transformation of our energy and land use systems globally in this century. That's where we're grappling with uh, in reality. But what we often do as scientists is kind of the worst way to connect with people and drive the kind of creativity and innovation and leadership that's necessary to solve that awesome challenge. So what we usually do scientifically is we take it from the top. We talk about carbon dioxide and nitrous oxide and methane and the way they're shifting the radiative balance of the planet. And if people haven't tuned out at that point, we then march through this long litany of risks, not just what's happening in the climate system, but bam, 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 you can go continent by continent, people, nature, how this is a pervasive challenge for every aspect of our existence. So at that point, most people are either uh, elevated in their pulse, slightly alarmed, or they have just completely disengaged. What we know from the science of how to do communications effectively. Effectively, is that you don't start with creating an abstract, unfixable, uh, unending challenge in your communications narrative. You connect with people, and Obama had it exactly right. You start with the fact that, yes, it's real, it's happening, it's serious, but we see solutions happening in so many different ways, and if you're going to hit people with the risk, you want to make sure they see how it connects to them here and now, how it's urgent, and how they can solve it. Again and again, scientifically, we haven't quite figured out how to make that happen, but I think there's enough recognition at this point that whether it's the IPCC or the NCA or scientists at every university, there's increasing determination to get the communications and engagement right.
1: There's uh, an acronym that I learned from George Marshall, wrote a book called uh, uh, Don't Even Think About It, What We Think About When We're Not Thinking About Climate Change, and in there he cites pain uh, to reach people. It needs to be personal, abrupt, immoral, and now. All, those th- all the things that climate change in its abstraction is not. Uh, so, Marco Kraples, you work a lot with Leonardo DiCaprio. There's a solutions project. Tell us about that effort to try to get to, and, and using his celebrity uh, to communicate, to, to reach people who may not be paying attention to scientists like, or, or others. Sure.
3: Um, by the way, um, I really do miss President Obama. I just want to <laughs> say that. Um, boy, the world has changed. Um, but, but. The, the world is still moving forward, with or without us. China right now is deploying solar at twice the rate that we are deploying solar. And soon it will be at three times the rate. India, Modi, I've had the privilege of meeting Prime Minister Modi when he came here to Silicon Valley, and he's made a huge commitment uh, to solar um, and, and, and powering his country with, with renewable energy. So with, with Leo... Um, yeah, I think what the, one of the reasons why we wanted to make Before the Flood the documentary is to try to find a way to reach more people, and uh, National Geographic ended up uh, picking up the movie, and it was great that they, uh, they screened it for free on various media outlets for two weeks. I think over 80 million people ended up uh, watching it just in the, in the first few weeks, and um, you know, uh, unfortunately we, we weren't able to swing the elections, um, but, you know, I do think it's important that Public figures and, and leo 's done a great job Mark ruffalo 's done a great job as well are reaching out to, to, to their followers and their people and letting them know that this is important. Vote and uh, please adopt renewable energy technologies as much as you can so leo 's been amazing he 's been a big supporter of the of the solutions project as well, and um, you know it 's great when you see people like Bernie Sanders as part of his campaign take the 100% renewable energy platform as his energy plan. I mean, that is, that is incredible. I mean, that didn't, we didn't see that one coming either. And there's been
1: some talk about a national policy for that. The state of California is at 50%, trying to go to 100%. But there's been an interesting backlash to this. You know, Professor Mark Jacobson, engineering professor at Stanford, published a paper, we can get to 100% in California. And some very green people pushed back on that. And now there's a lawsuit. So tell us about that, Marco.
3: Yeah, so, um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not a uh, you know, party to the lawsuit, um, but Dr. Jacobson, who's a co-founder of the Solutions Project, uh, with myself and Mark Ruffalo and Josh Fox, he, a few years ago, published a paper uh, doing a scientific analysis of what technologies uh, are available to transition ourselves to 100% renewable. And he focused on, uh, on, on hydro and pumped hydro uh, as... Uh, an important storage source, so um, I think he uh, was upset that there were uh, factual errors made in certain publications, and when he attempted to get those corrected um, and, and, and and not getting a response to that, uh, and he did reach out to various of those authors and um, if he, he didn 't get a response, so I think he uh, decided to file a lawsuit to get their attention and so um, you know the good news is is that Um, There are many other technologies available today to store energy. I mean, the cost of batteries has dropped over 50% in the last four years. So we're not necessarily dependent on uh, stored hydro or pumped hydro using a lot of turbines uh, to create that energy during peak hours. The beautiful thing about renewable energy is you can harvest the sun, you can harvest the wind and create cheap energy. The problem is that's intermittent. It's only during certain parts of the day. And our peak demand in California is in later hours in the day, in the evening, when we need that energy most. So you need some form of storage to be able to store what you generate during the day and be able to discharge that at night. The good news is is that uh, batteries are there. There is a reason why companies like Tesla are building massive storage projects coupled to solar, coupled to wind uh, in parts of the world, Uh, not because people think it's the right thing to do. It's because it's cheaper than any other source of energy. And so I think The good news for Dr. Jacobson and any other scientists looking at how we transition to 100% renewable is that there are other forms of storage that are available, that are economically feasible, that can be integrated with intermittent sources of renewable energy, like wind and solar, to get us to 100% renewable. And I really hope that SB100, the California effort that's on the way to get ourselves to 100% renewable energy faster uh, gets passed next year. Uh, and then California can lead again, with or without the rest of the United States.
1: Marco Kraepels is a former vice president of Tesla. Our other guest today at Climate One are Catherine Mock, research scientist at Stanford University, and Jeff Goodell, author of the new book, The Water Will Come. I'm Greg Dalton. We're going to go to our lightning round. I'm going to mention a noun to each of our guests and get their immediate, visceral, unfiltered response uh, association and also a true and false part of this. Starting with uh, Jeff Goodell, what's the first thing that comes to your Mind when I mention Norfolk, Virginia,
2: um, sunken ships.
1: Marco Crapels, Warren Buffett, Nevada, Catherine Mock, President Trump's science advisor.
4: What science advisor? He, he
1: does not have one. Um, Jeff Goodell, U.S. Secretary of Interior Ryan Zinke. Oh, clown! True or false, Jeff Goodell? Humanity is doomed. Oh, false. Uh, Catherine Mock, you would buy oceanfront property today. Maybe. Depends on the price. Marco Craples, true or false, Tesla's stock is way overpriced. (laughs) No comments. (laughs) There are no securities lawyers in the house, (laughs) are there? (laughs) I'm sure. Um, True or false, Jeff Goodell, you will go condo diving during your lifetime.
2: Anywhere in the world? Uh, my lifetime. I'm feeling pretty good. Uh, true.
1: One of the titles in his book, uh, 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 chapter titles, Condo Diving. Uh, Catherine Mock, the cover image of Jeff Goodell's book is depressing and doesn't activate readers.
4: It's a hard whack and we need solutions.
1: Marco Craples, uh, Elon Musk sometimes really does sleep at the end of the Tesla production line. Or on top of the factory. <laughs> On the roof. All right, that ends our lightning round. Let's give them a round of applause for getting through. Uh, Jeff Goodell, where are you traveled around? Lots of different places. Uh, Where are some model cities? Who's getting it right? Who's who's really kind of starting to build this new future with water that, that we're looking at?
2: That's a hard question um, because there's no real simple answer. Uh, there's no one model place that's really figuring it out. I mean, Copenhagen's trying to do really interesting things with water squares. Uh, you know, these building these squares in the center of the city that that, that are like of double as uh, reservoirs when there's big rain events. Um, you have places like um, the Netherlands that are doing interesting things with moving rivers around. Uh, but I actually think that... Um, New York is is really thinking deeply about this. And, um, you know, obviously they have the advantage, if you will, of uh, just being wiped out uh, with Hurricane Sandy. And so that inspired a lot of thinking. and They got money for this redesign thing called Re- uh, Rebuild by Design, where they brought had a, a competition with a bunch of architects and urban planners and some really innovative things have come out of that. Uh, they have enormous problems because of obviously the size of New York and the amount of sort of built infrastructure of, you know, brownstones with basements at sea level, right at you know at, at zero elevation. But they also have a lot of really forward-thinking people there who are really pushing hard on how do we reinvent this city and how do we how do we begin to take serious steps in this direction. So I would that's what I would say. Are you familiar with the
1: story of Hoboken? Hoboken also flooded. They were offered a whole bunch of money, and there were designs for some cement uh, seawalls, and they're like, those are ugly. You can keep your money. We don't want that.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I've spent a lot of time in, in Hoboken, and, you know, that brings up the whole problems of walls is not only are they ugly, but there's this question of, Um, who's behind them and who's not. And there were a lot of residents there who have paid a lot of money for condos right on the water with views of Manhattan that did not want the wall. They're like, I don't care if it's flooded. Well, I'll deal with the flooding. I don't want to stare at a wall every day. And so a lot of, you know, contrary to what one would think, a lot of people were pushing back saying, I don't want the protection. I'll deal with the risk. And then there's also the problem on the other side of things is like, why do you get a wall and I'm 12 Feed over here and I don't get a wall? Why do you decide to stop it there? How do you make that political decision of who's behind the wall and who's not? And that's one of the big problems broadly about coastal protection is how you decide who gets the wall.
1: Catherine Mock, that brings up another uh, conversation about winners and losers. There will be winners and losers in climate change. A lot of losers, but some winners. Tell us how that'll be distributed across uh, incomes and, and, and geography.
4: So there are winners and losers in the realm of risk but I also feel like there are winners and losers in the realm of responses we've seen so far that have played across the globe in some really interesting ways. So, for example, as Jeff was describing, all of the action we've seen in the Netherlands or in London or Oslo, I think what's also really fascinating is that Bangladesh, which is often characterized as a major loser in the realm of impacts, they're right at sea level, uh, huge populations right on the delta, incredibly poor, at the same time has been a big innovator in the realm of solutions. So they're preparing for cyclones, having areas where you can raise up your livestock, early warning systems that are incredibly... low cost. Another category where there is huge vulnerability to impacts is sub-Saharan Africa, where it's water issues, it's food issues, it's extremes that are already pushing people at the margin. But there, we've also seen great innovation in the realm of solutions, whether it's the development banks recognizing that if you climate-proof your investment, usually that's a marginal investment in terms of the whole cost of the road or the bridge or the dam, but it makes you that much more resilient into the future. So climate change risks are highly uneven, across the globe as a whole, within any one country, within any one community, but we're also seeing innovation and responses that isn't just the losers are faring worse. Sometimes the losers have been the biggest innovators in terms of making it happen so far.
1: And within the United States, are there certain regions, there was a uh, project out of the University of California, Berkeley, that looked at county by county in the United States, and generally what can you tell us about the South versus the Northwest in terms of uh, how that distribution lands in terms of winners and losers on the economy? economy.
4: Just about every community in the U.S. has experienced climate change impacts to date, but I think a really key point is that they've been different in different places. So in the Northeast, there's been a a substantial increase in the amount of rain falling in heavy downpour events. Uh, Here in California, we've been thinking about drought. Agriculture plays out differently where there are areas that actually have cooled in some cases at the same time that we've seen declines in productivity. So really, adaptation in many ways or preparing for the risks that are in the pipeline means that we need to consider the broad-scale trends at the globe as a whole, for the U.S. as a whole, but becoming prepared oftentimes means saying right here for us in the San Francisco Bay Area or California or the Southwest, step to any region, the portfolio of risks is different as well as the menu of response options.
1: Jessica Dell, you write about St. Augustine and New Orleans, uh, both with mayors who wanted their communities to be uh, removed from maps, flood maps, so that their uh constituents could pay lower flood insurance premiums, which is kind of increasing their risk, uh, reducing their protection, but it's responding to short-term political pressure that seems logical, I guess.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the, I was, uh, had the amazing experience of being in St. Augustine when Hurricane Matthew hit, and was there watching the water, like, come into the streets. And I was, like, you know, being kind of actually stupid and risking. We shouldn't have been out, but, but I was, because I was like, this is my moment, you know? I mean, this is what I write about. I, I need to be...
1: You want to be I, a storm chaser exactly, on the other channel, yeah.
2: Exactly, <laughs> and I'm sending little videos of my kids. Look at the water, kids. <laughs> um, uh, but I was there, and, and it just so happened that I had been looking at the flood maps for St. Augustine, you know, a few weeks before, and not knowing that that was going to be inundated, and I was standing on a in, a in a street, and I could see the water going over the hood of a Mercedes. And I looked at the flood maps, and this was, had just been removed from the flood zone. This exact block had just been removed from the flood zone, where the water was so deep that it was going over the hood of a Mercedes. I mean, these flood maps are uh, the whole flood uh, flood protection program is a big disaster, as it's been in the front page of The Times. And John Oliver did a great segment on it the other night also. Um, But one of the fundamental reasons is these flood maps are completely out of date Um, They're And they're, you know, if they're they're prone to political pressure. So. You know, if you don't... Because if you're in a higher-risk flood zone, you have to pay higher rates. And so a way to lower your rates is to call your congressman and to say, I don't like being in this zone. You know, get me out of it. And if your congressman is Chuck Schumer or if your congressman is someone with some power, um, you know, you can get... That will happen. And it literally gets... These flood maps get rewritten. And the other big problem is they're not forward-looking at all. There's no calculation for sea level rise for future flooding. And so you have this... You know um, uh, government program that is essentially encouraging people to rebuild in areas that are hugely at risk and is doing a very poor job of what I think is the most important thing to happen here, which is to make risk transparent to make allow people the tools to see what these risks that they 're running really are because people don 't know, and people have their entire homes uh, You know, their their life savings in their homes and they're building and living in areas that are really going to only decline in value.
0: Jeff Goodell's new book is The Water Will Come, Rising Seas, Sinking Cities, and the Remaking of the Civilized World. This is Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. You can listen to all of our programs and subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org. We're talking about high tides and wild weather caused by climate change. Our guests today are Rolling Stone contributor Jeff Goodell, Stanford University research scientist Catherine Mock, and Marco Crepels, co-founder of The Solutions Project. Here's your host, Greg Dalton.
1: Marco Craples, uh, you know, th- coming back to solutions, how much of this can the Trump administration move toward clean energy can be slowed down by the Trump administration right now?
3: I think they could do a lot of harm. There's um, right now there's a trade tariff dispute, uh, which could cause if, if Trump actually does end up signing that um, that resolution that could double the price of uh, of a solar panel. And so this um, is kind of part of hitting that, China for hitting back. Yeah, China. that's that could add as much as 30 to 40 cents a watt to to the to the price. So that, that would be devastating um, for, for the United States. Uh, it'd be great for the rest of the world because there'll be a lot of solar panels <laughs> that needs to go somewhere else. Uh, p- places like Brazil and other places are quickly adopting renewable energy. So, you know, I think uh, th- there is a lot of harm that that the Trump administration could do now. I do believe that the Trump administration likes the, the job creation aspect of of solar um, and and wind. Um, um, you know, he, he wants you as manufacturing. Uh, a lot of products actually are made here. Um, you know, Tesla makes cars here. Uh, the batteries are made here. Um, so, so I think it could cause a lot of harm. Uh, and you know, the United States' loss will be the rest of the world's gain if, if that happens. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One.
4: Yeah, thank you. Good evening. Uh, I'd like to follow up with this resiliency you mentioned about adaptation. Uh, as you may recall, there was another major event, but way back 1984 in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It looks like that city is doing a good job in terms of adaptation. Do the speaker know anything about this idea that engineers can do something about it in terms of adaptation design? We're seeing innovation happening, both in terms of preparing for the impacts of climate change and reining in emissions in places where climate change isn't the motivation or even the, the first thing in people's consciousness. In terms of the five states that are producing the most wind energy right now, they all voted red in the last election. In terms of grappling with sea level rise, you have this wonderful example of Florida, where there are communities where it's not really at the forefront of people's consciousness that they want to proactively address the risks of climate change, but they recognize that it's flooding. and that they need to grapple with it somehow. So I think in terms of adapting to the risks of climate change, we're seeing smart action because we're behind the eight ball now. In some cases, because people understand that there are substantial future risks in the pipeline, but often because the co-benefits are so large that it makes sense irrespective of the climate change benefits.
3: There, there, are, there are dozens Marco. and dozens of cities in the United States in spite of the U.S. as a country pulling out of the Paris Agreement. There are, I think it's in a couple hundred now, of cities. I and mean, these are some of them are real big cities that have committed to transitioning to 100% renewable energy because they think that's in the best interest of their citizens. So um, this, this is definitely happening.
2: And I, if I can just add, you know, a good example also is the military. I mean, the military is obviously... Um, you know, tree hugger lefties. Um, And I've spent a lot of time at naval bases and stuff, and they totally get it. Um, And they're doing, you know, all kinds of things to prepare for this changing world. Um, Unfortunately, they have to do it under the guise of uh, not talking about it, because if if they say they're doing something for... Climate change, then it gets zeroed out of the Pentagon budget. Uh, So they make up reasons that don't have anything to do with climate change to do what they need to do to do for, for climate change. So they're in this kind of double.
1: Navy Secretary under President Obama, Ray Mabus, was one of the most progressive people in U.S. government, I think, uh, in the entire Obama administration. Great Green Fleet moving uh, ships to renewable energy, jet fighters running on biofuel and solar power on bases. Has that rolled back under the Trump administration? Have they managed to kind of keep that going, Jeff Goodell?
2: I don't really. I can't really answer that uh, with the kind of authority that I would like to have because I haven't been in contact with many of the Navy people that I have uh, that I got to know while I was reporting the book. So, but I cannot imagine that it's changed significantly. I mean, as one commander said to me, you know, our job is to deal with the world as it is, not as we want it to be. <laughs> uh, and so, their you know, their whole way of seeing the world is. To look at it accurately, and to you know look at the facts, and they understand that the climate is changing. They see it. They see the water coming up. They see the they see the you know droughts that they're dealing with. They see the you know their job is to think about future conflicts. They're doing all kinds of modeling around around that about how droughts in certain areas that climate scientists are looking at might inspire conflicts, might put people on in motion. You know the idea of the political instability, from uh, people leaving areas because mm-hmm. of food shortages and things, is very much on the forefront of their mind. Plus, disaster work. I mean, like not only hurricanes and things like that, but now that we have the Northwest Passage open because of the melting ice in the Arctic, one of the things they're very concerned about is when, as inevitably will happen, one of these big cruise ships hits some ice or something, and you know, falls over, and who's going to go get them? Uh, And that's going to be the U.S. military. And so they're thinking about all this kind of stuff.
1: I was up in that uh, near the Northwest Passage this summer, and it is a long way from anywhere. Um, Let's go to our next question to Climate One.
3: Thank you. Um, Given the uh, existing projections on the rise in sea level and global warming, assuming that these projections continue, what do you see as far as any changes in global migration and the geopolitical consequences, in particular, globally and within the US, what the consequences of
1: that would be. I'd like to tackle that. Catherine Mock.
4: So a really key thing about migration is that oftentimes migration, when it's economically motivated, is super adaptive. The people who are moving benefit and the host regions benefit economically. The question around climate change is, how much will some of these traditional patterns we've seen around migration hold, especially when it could be 100 million people inundated within this century? So for example, oftentimes what happens in the aftermath of a disaster is that you get local temporary displacement. It's actually what we're seeing in Puerto Rico right now It's what we saw after Katrina here in the US, go country by country. That's the typical pattern. Where it really comes up to the fore is, well, will we get to the point where that's not just within country temporary displacement, but displacement that's spilling across national borders in ways that the international governance systems just can't handle. So there may be something there in terms of missing institutions where what we have in place right now for migration and refugees may simply be uh, incapacitated due to volume depending on how some of these disruptive events play out in particular in the realm of extremes.
1: Let's go to our last question. Welcome to Climate One.
4: Hi. Um, I am a um, volunteer
3: for the Climate Reality Project and for 350 Bay Area, and so I speak in the community, and um, it's a different group than is here. So I grapple a lot with how to approach the issue, and it kind of depends on what study I just read, right? So, And so I have a talk tomorrow night to a group, and I'm still grappling with what is my feeling tone, what am I... Am I optimistic? Am I really depressed about this? And do any of you have suggestions for me as far as how to approach this? Marco Craples. Oh, yeah. So, yes, we are in deep trouble. Yeah. And it is your responsibility for having being the gift of life to do everything that you can in your power to slow down the negative change that we're going to be all experiencing. So everything that you can do in your power, don't wait for some magic superman or superwoman to arrive because they're not coming. It is your responsibility to do everything you can do in your power, which is, um, I mean, if you are a resident in California, next year is Jerry Brown's last year as governor, inspiring him to commit this state, the sixth largest economy in the world, to moving to 100 percent of renewable energy. You know, we are voters. We can call our local councilmen. We can call our mayors. We can call our senators. Don't give up on being able to influence local politics, even though the national politics are a disaster. So uh-huh. you know, yes, we're in trouble. But you have to do everything you can that's within your power.
1: Yeah, I can. Totally
3: Catherine Mock, I think everyone who works in
1: climate wrestles with this despair and hope, and they, we, we live in both places. Uh, I asked that of Steve Chu, and he said, yeah, I'm totally bipolar. You know, he's very optimistic, and he's and sometimes very depressed. How do you personally manage that bipolarity?
4: <laughs> the risks are really serious, but climate change responses are a way to build a better world, and that's the case of uh, clean energy technologies that are good for human health, livelihood, security, uh, air quality in every community throughout the country, and it's the case in terms of preparing for the impacts that we're going to have to grapple with no matter what and uh, make sense in here in San Francisco, California, and U.S. as a whole.
1: So, Jeff Goodell, how do you manage that yourself? And, and dealing with people, yeah, how do you connect with people and that hope-fear tension?
2: Uh, so I'm um, kind of uh, primitive about this. Um, you know, I think of myself as a journalist who's trying to tell a story and trying to tell the truth about things, and I don't spend a whole lot of time... Um, Worrying about, I want. I want to effectively tell the truth that I that I best know, and how that truth and that story is used and told. You know, I'm not a political activist. Um, uh, I I want to communicate, but I, I I I don't spend a lot of time really thinking about about that part of it. You know, but I, I do fund, Sometimes I think about um, the scientist who was very influential to me uh, in Florida, in, in, when I was putting this book together, who. Uh, I was with him once in an audience, and they said, can you give us uh, anything for hope? And he said, yeah, I can give you hope. I hope you're listening.
1: (laughs) (laughs) What a great way to end it there.
0: (laughs) You've been listening to a Climate One discussion on rising seas and rising temperatures, how to find solutions, and where to look for hope. Our guests were Jeff Goodell, contributing editor at Rolling Stone and author of the new book, The Water Will Come, Rising Seas, Sinking Cities, and the Remaking of the Civilized World, Marco Krapels, former vice president of Tesla and co-founder of the Solutions Project, and Catherine Mach, senior research scientist at Stanford University and a former co-director of science for the IPCC. Podcasts of this and other Climate One shows are available wherever you podcast and on our website, climateone.org. Please leave us a comment. We'd love to know what you think about our conversations on energy, food, water, and more.
1: Climate One is a special project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Carlos Manuel is our producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich are the editors. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club's CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next time for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.